a card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. He's stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game uh, podcast, your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays in the morning at 8 a.m. until 10 a.m. Eastern Time, and it is replayed throughout the week and available as a podcast. I'm your host of the post-game podcast, professor of the Department of Statistics at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. My name is Adi Weiner, and I am going to break down the major themes of our week's show. I'm going to take apart some of our guests' best comments and discuss them a little bit with you guys. So our guests this week were Mark Glickman, who is a senior lecturer of statistics at Harvard University. He's also an author of the Handbook of Statistical Methods and Analyses in Sports. He's actually the editor and author of parts of that book. And he is an old friend of mine. I've known him since we were in high school together. And he is one of the most renowned and well-known analysts in the sports statistics universe. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about his work. And our second guest was Sean Foreman, who is the founder of Baseball Reference, now called Sports Reference. And they're actually based in the Philadelphia area. And they provide so much of the data and the data interfaces for all sports. It began, of course, with baseball. And, and most of us are regularly accessing BaseballReference.com data. So let's go to our first conversation we had with Mark Glickman. Mark is, to put some background on it, Mark's um, interesting PhD thesis had to do with working with the ELO rating, which was developed by a man named ELO, for chess. And he wanted to make an extension of that system, which is now called the Glico system. And he's going to talk us through some of its intricacies. So the ELO system was developed, as you said, by uh, Arpad ELO, who was a physics professor back, um, you know, it was all developed back in the late 50s, early 60s. You know, the whole point was to um, come up with an improvement on what they were currently doing to rank chess players. The basic idea is that you end up, based on your, your wins and losses in in games that you play uh, against opponents, you end up getting a rating. The higher the rating, the better you are. And the new feature about his system is that you know, when you start defeating players that are, say, better than you, your rating will increase you know, proportionately. If you, if you defeat players that are much worse than you, your rating will go up, by not, but not by that much. And, and, you know, the key innovation in what he was doing is that he would end up uh, essentially scaling the amount by which rating would go up as a logistic function of the difference of the players' ratings. Okay, so the key innovation actually is a mathematical model, and he essentially created a, a mathematical model that predicts the probability of winning as a function of a power score that each individual has. That's the ELO rating. It's scaled to be on average 1,500. And the power rating is attached to a probability of winning through a logistic link function. I'm not going to talk about that too, with, it's a little too complex for, for the radio and for podcasts, but that's the basic model. And I like to think of the ELO rating as a winning percentage that it's been adjusted for the strength of schedule. So if you play weak teams, uh, even though you, you may have beaten them, you can't possibly have a very good ELO system in the sense that your winning percentage might look 100%, but it would get knocked down because you haven't 
played very strong teams. And that's the kind of thing we see in the in the BCS rank, ranking for college football, where teams that don't play tough competition, even if they have undefeated records, aren't going to compete for the national title. And the ELO rating is a, is a much more mathematically sophisticated and sound way of doing that, creating, again, a winning percentage that's adjusted for the strength of schedule. Now, the ELO system does have weaknesses, and one of the weaknesses is that it doesn't really take into account the number of times you've competed with different opponents at different levels. And that's very important for statistical analysis because reliability depends on repetition. And so the more times you've encountered a strong opponent and you've defeated them, that counts more than having just one or two encounters with a weak or strong opponent and having defeated that opponent. So the Glico system, which Mark Glickman invented, really tries to focus on that problem. One of the big negatives with ELO system is that all you get is a rating. You get a single number that describes your uh, your ability. So the problem is that you could have a situation where maybe two teams have you know, in, in the context of, of rating, rating teams as opposed to chess players, you could have two teams, say, uh, in like some amateur league that have the same rating, the same ELO rating, but one of them is like plays all the time, and so that rating is a fairly uh, reliable measure of their strength, whereas another team, you know, maybe only played like once or twice, and so the rating that you compute was only based on very limited information. It doesn't really so, capture the uncertainty of that rating. Exactly. Yeah, so that was my co-host that on the, our show. That was Shane Jensen, really trying to um, focus in on the idea that the, what is wrong with the ELO system is it doesn't capture the uncertainty, the randomness that there is in a rating system. And that's probably because it was formulated in the context of chess, and there's far less uncertainty in games of chess than there is in other components. And, and in other sports, it's actually quite important that you work that in, because in even teams that are, that are weaker than another team, they can beat them with certain decent probabilities of course, depending on the sport. So one of the things that Mark does talk about is handling the Glico system across different sports. So in Glico, it, it doesn't quite get in at that level. I mean, I so, so if, it, if a team is, uh, you know, say like a strong team has only played twice, or, or, or say a team has played twice and they've defeated a strong team, then you'd have that reflected in the Glico system by that team having still a pretty uncertain rating. And it probably would be more uncertain than if they defeated somebody, you know, some team that was about at their level. So the standard error that gets computed is mm-hmm. definitely a function of the, you know, the rating of the opponent. You know, the kind of the more unusual the result, the less certain the, um, you know, the standard error is going to be. So the Glico rating has been around now. It's used in chess. Hasn't really made indentations into the sports universe, and that's probably because there's a lot of competition and the schedules are fairly balanced. And so that, in some sense, obviates the need for having the Glico system innovations. But we heard from Mark that it is becoming very heavily used in the online gaming community. And there's a community I think we're eventually going to be spending more time talking with, and that really hasn't impacted our show very much. But we've been learning that the online gaming community is vast and growing, and there's probably a growing analytics community there too. So our second guest was Sean Foreman, as I talked about earlier. He's the founder of Baseball Reference. And one of the things about Baseball Reference is that that the data is... um, it's out there in these archives. There was a man named Pete Palmer who created a book called, he wrote a book called Total Baseball, and he put a, a CD-ROM in the back of his book. 
and that CD-ROM was cracked, and that became the basis of Baseball Reference. And there's another website called Retro Sheets, which goes and takes the box scores for every baseball game. I think they have over 100 years worth of box scores, and they inputted that online, and all that data is there. And what Baseball Reference is, it compiled a lot of a lot of that data to create the early form of Baseball Reference. The main thing that we provide to the audience uh, is kind of an integration of all of these different sources in a in a really easy to use package. So we, you know, we use retro sheets. We have box scores back to 1913. We use baseball info info solutions. So we have defensive runs saved. We have current season data. So we have all of that data uh, that's combined into a single single source. So you can really find everything you want there. Can uh, you find raw data? So I mean, so one of the things that RetroSheet has, it'll tell you sort of play by play. It has right. all that information. Can you get that on the Baseball Reference well, site? Well, so we're we're not really uh, targeting the uh, power user ah. who wants to, you know. Not, but we don't we don't necessarily discourage those people. I mean, I look at my server logs and I see all of them scraping our site constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go to our site, you you do see we have like a download into Excel um, tool on there. We have, you can get it as CSV, but we're not, we're not in the, um, you know, we license a lot of our data. So we're technically not even allowed to like, you know, re- repackage it and and provide it for big downloads for other people. So, I mean, RetroSheet, why would we recreate what RetroSheet does mm-hmm. when they've already done it? So they do license their data, which means that they can't turn around and and repackage the data that they've gotten from somewhere else. But it is a great resource, baseballreference.com, and I heartily recommend it. It is used in other sports, and those other sports are growing much more quickly than baseball, which I think is probably at its at its peak right now. It's almost at its maximum, although there is a huge new component of data that's not even public at all yet. That's the StatCast data. Eventually, Baseball Reference and websites like it will provide that data to the public. But uh, it is growing in the other sports historically baseball is number mm-hmm. one it's still number one but it's it's basketball is actually growing very quickly and and, and year over year baseball's pretty level it's not you know five to ten percent growth year over year but basketball is 20 30 percent every year and 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 um, so I would say right now we're probably like uh, baseball's 40 percent basketball's 25 30. Football is twenty, and then the rest are college mm-hmm. sports and and uh, and hockey. So yeah. hockey's still, which I can't quite put my finger you on. You know, but I, I mean, if if doesn't. somebody figures out why hockey lags so much behind the other sports, the major sports as far as analytics goes, they they need to tell me. I, yeah. I I mean, I've thought about it, and there's various reasons, various aspects of the game that I think are harder to quantify, and but right. there's really no excuse for it. I think it's somehow like as an entire industry, there's just kind of like less so buy behind. in. Yep, hockey still lagging behind the use of analytics, and that's probably because it's such a fast-paced, flowing game, and it's not that clear how analytics can contribute in a way that is comprehensible to the public. Now, the stat cast data is not yet available on BaseballReference.com or any other websites that the public can access, but it has had a tremendous impact on play, and one of the things that has been observed is that you can really break down what it is that allows you to succeed on the offensive side. I mean, there's a lot of skills that that were that were highly regarded that have been lost, like bunting skills, like mm-hmm. spray hitting skills, opposite field hitting skills. No, no, I, I think we're, we're right now, we haven't achieved equilibrium. I think that hitters will adjust, but I think right now we are in a phase where hitters are, have not been able to keep up with the defense. And maybe that's part of the reason we're not seeing... 
you know, as many balls in play, definitely balls in play are at an all-time low, right? So, so well, tell me- right. I, I mean, I think the game is, I, every, everybody's figured out that you got to hit the ball really hard yeah. in order to get get a hit. And so, you know, that's why strikeouts are up. And they've also come to realize that double plays, I mean, basically you're better off hitting the ball as hard as you can rather than trying to just make contact because it leads to double plays. Yeah, that's right. Reached on errors are incredibly rare because the fielders are so darn good. You know, it's a situation where the hitter's stri- approach is definitely changed where I have to get a specific pitch in a specific place so I can hit it, hit a line drive, which has a 850 batting average compared to a ground ball, which has a 175 batting average. Yeah. So, or a fly ball that has a 120 batting average, unless you hit a home run. So, so yeah. So I mean, the hitters have definitely changed their approach, and that's why we're doing you know three true outcomes, uh, you know, walks, home runs, or, or strikeouts instead of putting the ball in play. So the baseball world has definitely been impacted by all this analysis and all these databases. We, of course, have been seeing um, just a change in the way baseball players are hitting. They have this uppercut. They want to hit it hard. They don't try to choke up on the bat and just poke it to stay out of the double play. Or they don't, they don't do those things anymore. They just hit it as hard as they can anytime they can. And that, of course, leads to lots of strikeouts and lots more home runs and lots more hard hit balls. And the observation that Sean made online I think is interesting is that the fielders have gotten better. That's something that it's it's somehow hard for us to imagine but i think it does make sense i mean athletic performance is always getting better in all other sports and so why not baseball so fielding is good i mean they they tend to to field successfully balls that are hit ground balls lead to outs fly balls lead to outs unless of course they leave the park so there has been a uh, a sea change i think in the way the game is 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 being played and that's seen in the last couple of years pretty dramatically with many many more home runs and a whole different approach to hitting and different approach to pitching So that concludes this edition of Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. The full show is available on SoundCloud or on the Apple Store under podcasts. Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball live every Wednesdays from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's business radio channel 111. I want to thank our producer, Danielle Bruno, and the producer of Wharton Moneyball, Matt Johnson. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your stats.